You're listening to Plants in Place, a four-part ecology and ethnobotany podcast produced by Groundwork. I'm Riley Lopez. Groundwork is a Colorado nonprofit. We offer educational programs in Western Colorado focused on deepening people's relationships with the places they call home. We teach about seed keeping, ecology, the Colorado River, and relocalizing culture. This podcast series is a four-part introduction to a few topics related to ecology and ethnobotany. If you're interested to learn more in a hands-on setting, Groundwork offers courses on human ecologies of Colorado for all ages. The program set up a base camp in national forests of Western Colorado, spending days exploring the ecoregion and learning to understand people's relationships with plants. Registration information for upcoming ecology programs is available on Groundwork's website at layinggroundwork.org. There you'll find information on our instructors and dates for upcoming programs ranging in length from a long weekend to a full week. These podcasts are made available without a paywall. In accessing this podcast episode, we ask you to consider a form of exchange. We do accept donations to support our work. And we also encourage you to consider other forms of exchange, too. Please share about our work here. Take an action that gives back to the earth, including singing your song or spending time tending the earth. This Ethnobotany Talk series was designed by Gabe Crawford. Gabe is a naturalist and ethnobotanist working on experimental archaeology projects throughout the Intermountain West, tracking the parallel lives of people and plants, by locating semi-wild patches of biscuit roots and other carrot family plants in the tablelands of Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Wyoming. Born and raised in Colorado, Gabe has devoted his life to the pursuit of place-based living. From his studies with many teachers, Gabe has become a renowned teacher on tending semi-wild food plants. He is dedicated to decolonizing modern people's views of the ecosystems they are a part of, bringing traditional foods back into more common use, and breaking down the mental divide between the cultivated and the wild. This fourth and final talk series episode is about Russian olive and Siberian elm, where we look at the pharmacology, ethnobotany, and history of these controversial trees, focusing on their ecological and human health benefits. This talk was recorded live from Groundworks Home on our working educational seed farm, which resides on the ancestral homelands of the Nuchu, or Ute people. Well, welcome, everybody. We came to the grand finale of this talk series. I am a wannabe ethnobotanist. I love love exploring the intersections of ecology, culture, place, and plants, and history. The more intersections I can pull together with this, the more I can understand the world around me and myself in relationship to the world. Um, I love citizen science and I love ecology. And to me, uh, ecology and the the very three-dimensional web of life that we're a part of is very, um, all these factors are very inseparable people, place, plants, culture, history, you know, and that's one thing that uh, this work for me has been kind of leading me through this labyrinth of finding a lot of the blind spots and like the current narratives around in modern science around um, the way people fit in, you know, 
um, trying to recover and decolonize from the current misanthropic worldview that all humans can do is mitigate harm, you know? All we can do is reduce, reuse, and recycle. Um, that is not true. You have permission to, like, never believe that ever again. There is more evidence than not um, of humans living in symbiosis with their ecologies for long, 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 long time. And that's a big part of my work. You know, I work with native seeds. I do a lot of native seed collections, specifically with uh, traditional first food plants, um, indigenous foods that are having some interesting times with climate change. And I also move them around. I dig them. I eat them. They're like a really big part of my life. And I am trying to track how they are responding to climate change. It's a really culturally sensitive line that I play with working with traditional first foods. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot there, you know, one of the, in the context of colonization, you know, the trade networks and the traditional first foods were one of the first things that were attacked by the government to assimilate, uh, indigenous peoples because, uh, these foods are their language, their culture, their whole life way is all rooted in a place in the foods of these places. It is in their creation stories, it's in their languages, it's in their songs, it's in their ceremonies. It's a really big thing. And through that, I kind of, I have to get into a lot of stuff, you know, I, and this is why, like, I, I've never gone to college, you know, but I do a lot of pretty in-depth, thorough research on a regular basis and spend a lot of time in the field. And I have discovered for myself personally that, um, harvesting and eating and planting and working with uh, wild food is can be one of the most uh, potent forms of field research. And what I realized is like, oh, this is like the original human, human field research. Like our ancestors and people, we, we've been doing this for since we've been here on this planet. This is how traditional ecological knowledge has come about, is by people living in, a, in, a, in their environment and getting to know the animals and insects and plants and their whole biome very, very intimately and creating um, relationships of endearment and um, adoration, really, because like when you don't have, you know, when, when you don't have the titty of Babylon to fall back on, you have to take care of your place. You have to like actually be very mindful of how you engage with your local landscape when you don't have the industrial supply system to fall back on. You have to be really mindful of your trade relationships with other people. And um, so because of this, I've had to like really get into a lot of stuff on invasion biology and a lot of stuff and like just all around ecology. And and it's been something that has brought me a lot of joy because I, I think that we are all an ecological species, you know. We're, uh, we're born into ecologies and we die in ecologies and we will become a part of an ecology and... Uh, ecology is an interesting word because it comes from the Greek word oikos, ecos, economy and ecology both say this, share this root word of home. That's what the eco means is, is the home. And so, and logos is the ology, it means the language of, you know, so it's like we have ecology is such a vast field. Biology is, there's such vast fields that like there's all of these sub-disciplines that people specialize in and um, I've been really lucky to have access to a lot of like friends like 
some friends have given me their university library passwords where I can go and like mess around and have access to a lot of academic papers and I've had to learn slowly learn the skill of how to like sift through and interpret like field research and academic papers which is like fun but it's also really heady and so today I was like going through the thing of like the past couple of days of sifting through all of this like pharmacology research on Russian olive and really enjoying it being like oh my god how do I like put this all in an easy to understand language um, but I did it and it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm going to start off with Siberian elm here y'all know who y'all know Siberian elm Siberian elm is an amazing tree um, they originate in East Siberia Mongolia northern China Korea um, Central Asia. This is actually one of the only deciduous trees native to the Gobi Desert. Who's heard of the Gobi Desert? That's an intense desert. And these trees get really big. They're like the only big shade tree that grows in the Gobi Desert. And then you look at our, you know, high desert landscape here and you wonder like, oh, that's why they do so good, you know? And um, I've been really following Russian olive around for a few, quite a few years now, and I've paid attention to where they grow and why they grow there. And they don't grow in non-disturbed places. You know, they really thrive in disturbance. Um, and oftentimes, in a lot of contexts, they're like one of the only shade, shade canopy trees in this like high desert landscape, which is pretty significant. We actually need that. Um, and when you have when you have all of the water augmentation that's been happening in the West that is like drastically shifted our whole uh, plant communities and biomes, you know, where the natural disturbance regimes that used to happen, like floods from like spring melt-off can't happen anymore. Uh, different players come in the game that don't need these things. They don't need these kinds of disturbance events. They thrive from different disturbance events. And oftentimes, you know, the thing about uh, nature is that nature is an equal opportunity employer. You know, a lot of ecologists are starting to recognize that this idea of uh, an ecosystem having a very limited number of niches is actually not true. You know, um, we, we, we like to talk about in our culture about like invasive species causing a lot of harm. And when you're reading this stuff and when you're talking to people about this you know this is what I, I don't i'm saying i don't have any answers i'm just asking questions and one of the questions is what is harm is change harm you know i don't know i'm just saying that these are good questions to ask but change is the actually the only constant in ecology and um right now we're in a time where we're seeing change happen really fast and species are responding to it in ways that we are not expecting too you know, a lot of native species and a lot of introduced species are doing things that we actually never foresaw them doing. And that's the thing. There's this concept called ecological stochasticity, which means um, in the su succession of ecosystems, you know, from like in the seral stages of succession, like if you were to cut down a whole forest and then it would be like an open meadow that would come in with all of like the herbaceous plants, then the bushes, then the young trees, and then it would eventually grow into like a tall canopy those are seral stages of succession and um we've realized for a while now that like succession never happens the same way once it happens different every time and um 
and that's the thing is that that's that concept of stochasticity is random unexpected curveballs that like ecology is always throwing at us but to come back to siberian elm they're amazing um here i'm actually gonna i'm gonna pass this around and what i want you all to do is find a little spot on the stem and scrape it with your fingers and just feel that wonderful slimy mucilage that comes on the stems when you scrape them so yeah being from uh, central asia the steppe lands the gobi desert it's a tough tree it's amazing that they're also one of the most gentle medicines that we have access to here too you know they um are also one of the one of my favorite foods here like the whole tree is is an amazing food not like the wood i'm not saying the whole tree but like in the spring you have the samaras that grow the green seeds they're like one of my favorite spring greens and then you can actually uh cha you can winnow the chaff off of the dried samaras and you'll have a little quinoa sized grain that you can actually cook like a grain um, it's a lot of work to do this but I don't know if y'all have figured this out even with farming that like food's a lot of work mm -hmm. and that we just like, <laughs> we talk about like wild foods being a lot of work, but it's like, have you ever farmed before? You know, like food is a lot of work, you know? And this is the cool thing about like working with your own food is this is where like song and culture and like stories and like actual intact humanness comes from is by breaking bread with your community and actually doing the work to like tend and harvest and like process your food that you rely on. So yeah, food's a lot of work, but it's good work, you know? And I think my ADHD brain really thrives off of that work because I can hyper-focus on one mundane task for like days at a time when it comes to processing these foods, you know? So I do really well with this. But um, recently my friend, so I was talking to my friend Amanda I was talking to her about Siberian elm and how I use the Samaras. I like pickle them and I, I made the elm chips. Did you all have elm chips? They're pretty good. It's awesome. And I was just talking to her about the stuff I like to do with elm. And she's like, oh, I never thought about like pickling the, the elm Samaras or like cooking them down as a grain. Because what she does is she harvests all, harvests all the dried elm Samaras. You know what I'm talking about? They just like fall in piles on the sidewalks every year. Um, she feeds them to her kids as a cereal. They just like have jars of them and they pour them into a bowl and pour milk in it and just eat it. And I was like, that's amazing. That's awesome. And, um, and then, so, and as a medicine though, they're actually one of the most accessible demulcent mucilaginous like medicines we have access to it. Um, who knows slippery elm? You know, slippery elm, right? It's like you see it in like sore throat or like the throat coat formula, mucilaginous, um, demulcent, gentle herb that's like really good for the mucosal membranes of the gut, you know, good for the throat. Um, Siberian elm is, has all of the same medicine as slippery elm, you know, so we can, we have access to that medicine here all the time. And, um, and it's amazing too because like it's so hot and dry here and i get really dry and scratchy in my throat and honestly it's just like uh what you can do is you can like strip the bark off of the elm and you can put it in cold water and it gets nice and slippery and you can just drink that you know like here it's dry and we have to like these demulcent herbs are cooling they're moistening 
and they're like really helpful for people in these like really dry environments and um also like with the demulsants you know they are also emollient which is like for the skin you know like have a similar kind of use as like a aloe or prickly pear for burns for rashes eczema psoriasis you know you can make like you can like take the the cold water infusion of slippery elm and you can like put it on your skin or you can just make a poultice out of like even the samaras or the leaves or that that bark and you can put it on your skin as just like a cooling um a cooling emollient but it's also interesting that in that um it's also a very powerful antimicrobial plant that they found is resistant to uh 13 different strains of MRSA you know so it's like a pretty amazing medicine that we all have access to here they're not going anywhere and if you really kind of like take away a lot of the cultural sayings and biases a lot about a lot of these plants and start paying attention to what they're actually doing you'll see that nobody's doing the same thing in any one place and this is my problem with a lot of like the scientific in a lot of the scientific communities that they make these overgeneralizations, you know, they like, they'll, they'll, oftentimes there's a lot of sampling bias in a lot of this scientific research and people don't replicate their studies more than once, which is a, another problem because you got to get funding for studies and funding is a thing where like whoever is funding your research gets a say in what the end product is. These are all things to think about. You know, these are things that like as citizen scientists, oftentimes you don't have to go through bureaucratic stuff, you know, and you can like make your own observations. And um, oftentimes you'll see that like a lot of these things are generalized and generalizations sometimes are appropriate, but most of the time they really aren't or pretty inappropriate, especially in the context of like how we relate to people and plants and places, you know, so yeah um interesting thing too about these like slippery demulcent plants after winter you know like in a lot of like hunter gatherers you know they are eating like dried fruit and meat and a lot of like dried foods reconstituted in water like all winter long and then come spring they have a like gut priming to get ready for the year of everything fresh you see bears do this too like, if you ever looking at bear poop in the springtime, it's just full of nothing but, like, vegetation. They're just, like, priming their gut. In the springtime, slippery demulcent herbs, you know, like mallow, slippery, or, or elm, you know, it kind of helps prime the gut to, like, get, get ready for, like, a diet of fresh everything. You're going from a diet of, like, not-so-fresh everything to a diet of, like, fresh foods, and that's actually really important to, like, help prime your gut. And one of the cool things about these demulcent mucilaginous herbs is their um, ability to soothe and help heal the epithelial tissue. Epithelial tissue is like, our skin is a type of epithelial tissue. It's a tissue that's like lines our guts and the insides of our organs. Any kind of hollow organ has epithelial tissue lining it. And you want cell junctions to be like nice and tight and tonified and like strong in epithelial tissue. 
and um, oftentimes like leaky gut stuff and all those things come from like the epithelial tissue is so perforated and loose that like stuff is like going where it shouldn't so these like demulcent slippery herbs like help kind of like soothe can help soothe the inflamed mucus mucosa membranes in our gut and like help kind of like soothe that epithelial tissue which is pretty important you know it's like for the skin and for the gut right um oh yeah and really cool thing Slippery elm also has salicylic acid in it. You know, same thing willow has. It's like what they uh, synthesized the original aspirin from. You know, so it is anti-inflammatory and um, helpful for pain as an analgesic, you know. And I wanted to keep my talk on slippery elm a little bit more brief because the Russian olive is really the babe I'm here to, like, really talk about and shine light on because they... I've been sifting through this one for a few days now, trying to render down my notes to make it digestible. And um, it was really hard. <laughs> I was just like, this is a lot. Um, but Russian olive, y'all know Russian olive. They're beautiful. They really are amazing. They're in the Iliagnaceae plant family. Iliagnus genus is a... Uh, is there, this is just an incredible group of very amazing, culturally significant trees from all around the world. You'll go ahead and pass them around. The berries are not quite ripe yet. After they freeze, they get a lot more sugary. And um, like I said, you mentioned decolonizing our diet. A big thing for me in this work has been decolonizing my palate. Americans have the most pitifully handicapped palate in the world feel very bad for people it sucks um i have been training my palate to love astringent sour bitter um complex flavors for years now and i'm like really getting there with it you know and like my body thanks me for it are we really have it's necessary to like retrain our palates to eat different kinds of foods and um like, the average indigenous tribe in North America ate over 250 different plants every single year, you know? And in those plants, you had bitters and sours and astringents and, like, slimies. You had all of it, you know? And it's like, that's something that we actually really need. If we want to have a diverse diet, we have to diversify our palate. And, yeah, take a nibble of the unripe Russian olives. There's a texture, too, you know? They were mealy, um... Got a lot of pectin in them, but um, let's go over some of the cultural history of Russian olive. If you ever try to do research online about Russian olive, it's really hard because you type in Russian olive into the search engine and you just get like a bunch of crap about just like how much Russian olive is horrible. So you start looking into the other languages from other countries where Russian olive is very culturally significant and you type in those different names and then you start actually getting to the good stuff, you know. So Russian olive has been used in Middle Eastern folk medicine for thousands of years. Senjed, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right. That is the Iranian name in Turkey. I don't know if I'm saying that right either. Pakistan. Oh, yeah. Sinjur. 
there's some other names. I don't really need to write all of them down. But if you go on the search engine and type in these names, you actually start to get a lot of the pharmacology research that these countries have invested a lot of money into. One of the things that motivated a lot of this was uh, a lack of access to new pharmaceutical. So pharmaceutical companies are like, we need access to more, more medicines because we're like certain resources to make certain pharmaceutical drugs are limited, you know? And so they started like branching out to try to find out, find different sources to make new drugs with. And that's kind of like where a lot of the research around Russian olive in these other countries came from. Because they saw, they were like, oh, Russian olive. It has like thousands of years of folklore and like folk medicine use associated with it. So they did a lot of research on it. And they basically proved everything that the folk medicine practitioners have been saying for thousands of years. But then found a lot, lot, lot more. This like, this, this tree is a cornucopia. It's kind of insane. This is why I had a little bit of an overwhelming time trying to synthesize this down. Because like once I get all like into the biochemistry of like plant stuff you know i go into these little wormholes and i just get really excited and i'm like oh i have to like make this make sense somehow but it's really incredible like the 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 phytochemistry in russian olive is is crazy so ethnobotanically russian olive in turkey and iran and pakistan and in like kazakhstan and all these central asian countries is like it's in a, it's like a, a very culturally significant food. And in the Persian spring celebration, there's, I think it's called, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's uh, narwoots or something. There's seven sacred items that they put on the table uh, the, on the meal celebration, like seven sacred foods. Russian olive is one of them, and it symbolizes like love to them. Very culturally significant um, it's just like a tonic food, you know? And like, I don't know, I, I get a lot of inspiration from my food stuff from Middle Eastern cuisine because their palate is a lot, like, a lot more diverse. And I was like pickling a lot of green fruits and working with a lot of green fruit this year. And I got that inspiration from Middle Eastern cuisine because like when they thin all their fruits from their trees every year, they green fruit is like a big market hot commodity seasonally every year that they do all kinds of stuff with. And I'm like, yeah, Middle Eastern folks, they know what's up with the food, you know. They, 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 they know how to work with all these different flavors. Um, and so here, right, you have, and when you think about, like, the ecology of this tree and where this tree comes from and why they do so well here, we live in the desert. We live in the high desert. We have already, like, naturally, like, saline, alkaline soils out here, Um and Russian olive does not mine saline alkaline soil. Here in this specific bioregion where we live, geologically, this whole area is mainly comprised of Manka shale. Manka shale, you know, like the dobies, like when you go out into Hotchkiss and like Eckert and on your way up to Cedar Edge, if you go through Austin and take that back road, you know, you see a lot, a lot of that pasture out there, how it's just like a big forest of Russian olive the whole way. Um, you know, you could be like, oh, look at that Russian olive, damn it, they're invasive, you know, but when you actually, like, look at the landscape through a historical lens, you're like, this was all dobies, and then, like, white people came and settled it and started irrigating already saline, salty, like, soil, 
and then like we basically created the perfect habitat for these trees to just thrive you know we started irrigating it and then we put animals all over that pooped all over it so we fertilize it and then the and they compact it and then these trees come in and they just like fill in a niche that we created for them if we didn't do you know terry i'm talking about between like here in cedar edge when you're out there and you see those huge swaths of russian olive that is anthropogenic you know th that is actually like a human created habitat that we create for them because they 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 like saline salty soil and we're watering them and they kind of just fill in the niche that we create for them and the interesting thing with like this is like this opens up the big world of in the conversation of western water policy and the history of like the bureau of reclamation and the army corps of engineers and the development and the settling of the west and how you know turns out that uh rain does not follow the plow out here like they said it would when they were trying to get people to come out here that <laughs> they figured that one out the hard way and so they had to start damming rivers and diverting waterways and augmenting water to create um to create the world that we know the world we know in the west is built on the house of cards of water diversion it's just something to be aware of if you live here. If you want to get really depressed, just study the history of Western water law and then come talk. I'll give you a hug. I understand. It's real. It's like super crazy. And it's really hard to understand too because there's like this whole legal language that they created around it. I think they did that purposely to make it really hard for people to understand how water policy actually works. But this is the ecological implications of this are very real because like we have completely shifted the whole biome, a lot of the biomes of the Intermountain West because of water diversion, you know. Water is life out here and what water does influences life here. Um, so yeah, obviously we know that like introduced species and invasive species can come into disturbances, right? Like we disturb an area, there's like pioneer species that come and do that. And then there's the flip side of that that a lot of people don't talk about is disturbance regimes that change. Lack of certain kinds of disturbances can do the same thing because like, you know, with humans burning, with grizzly bears digging, you know, we've eliminated a lot of key players in lower 48 like wolves and grizzly bears and a lot of other uh, disturbance creating species that have that created whole plant communities, you know, because of disturbance. Um, and one of the th ways that we've done that the biggest is by augmenting waterways and stopping floods. Cottonwoods and willows, they really need floods. Floods is how they germinate. And the flood control, like if you go to the Animus River in Durango, that is undammed you won't see any Russian olive growing on most of that river until you get like way further south when a lot of like the water um, that gets irrigated and gets put back into the river, probably a little bit more salty, you know, when you're like further south in the Ute Reservation. You'll see a little bit more Russian olive there, but it doesn't just like grow on the whole river. You have like all your cottonwood and your willow. Like the, the river ecosystem in Durango and the Animus is actually pretty diverse because they don't, they don't, um, they let that river flood. When you stop rivers from flooding, how that changes riverbank morphology, it changes the whole plant communities that need those like big cataclysmic floods to, um, to germinate, right? So the Colorado River, 
moves more sediment every year than the Nile. It's one of the most sediment-rich rivers in the world. You know, it's draining the whole western slope, and then it drains, like, all these, like, really sediment-rich areas, you know, like the sedimentary rocks that it erodes. You know, we have these big floods every spring that would, like, usually just, like, completely rip riverbanks apart and deposit massive sandbars, and it would, like, change the landscape every spring you know and then those like species that were adapted to that did it really good in that but now that that doesn't happen you have your russian olive you have your tamarisk that kind of like hold the, sh the riverbanks together and because of the lack of these big floods that move the ch river channels around and spread that water out we have like narrower deeper river channels that are held together by like russian olive and tamarisk that can handle the saltier water of course and we blame it on the trees, but it's like, no, nah, man, we did that. They are just responding to conditions that we created for them very well. You know, we've taken already salty rivers that drain from already kind of like saline landscapes like this area, like the Gunnison River was already a salty river. We like dammed it up, made the Blue Mesa Reservoir, send all that irrigation out into like a lot of Minka Shale areas that irrigation water seeps in through the fields picks up a lot of the minerals and salts in those substrates and percolates its way back down into the rivers and comes back saltier and saltier every time combined with big reservoirs like pal and mead and blue mesa etc that like take a river and expose it make a massive surface area of water exposed to hot sun and heat that evaporates the water what happens when you evaporate salty water it makes it saltier and so on and so on. And so you see these big plant community shifts in the West, and it's like, you know, people are trying to push a wet noodle uphill by just doing a ton of, like, removal, you know. And honestly, it's just like, you can try to polish a turd all you want. Just remember that you're still, it's a turd. Like, I don't care if you're trying to polish a turd. Just, like, acknowledge that, like, yeah, this is a turd. I'm polishing it, and it's, like, fine. If you're fine with that, whatever. But I met a lot of people in the restoration world that are like, I feel like it's a losing battle. And it's like, yeah, you're kind of approaching it from the wrong area. You know, you're putting the cart before the horse. You know, you're trying to change something that like you're changing it. You're like trying to change it by pushing a cart uphill. It doesn't really work like that. It's a bigger issue of just like our lifestyles and the whole history of this whole Western empire is built on. Uh, diverting water a long ways and doing stuff with that water that drastically changes whole biomes and plant community types. So it's a lot bigger than just like, oh, this tree is bad. You know, one, calling a tree bad is not scientific at all. That is a, you're placing a value judgment on a tree. So just remember in invasion biology, that field of science is very much, it's probably one of the most anthropomorphized fields and you'll hear in college, like, don't anthropomorphize them. But it's like invasion biology, like, breaks all those rules. Most of the language in that field of science came from, like, Charles Elton, who was kind of, like, the father of invasion biology. He was, he was in World War, I, World War II. And so, like, a lot of the language that we use today has its history in, like, wartime, you know. And if you hear, like, how people actually talk about plants in that field, you're like, oh, you're you're talking about it in a very not neutral in a very emotive um value judgment based kind of language you know and it's like it's fine if you want to do that but you're actually not using a like neutral scientific language you're using a very emotive kind of wartime language so to loop back around 
with the history of why these trees do so well here, we help them do very well here. And we're going to continue to do well because I think people like we want change, but I don't think most people are willing to give up the things that need to, you know, make changes to make the change we want. And this is kind of like a lot of what this nonprofit's about is like kind of focusing on the internal and cultural aspects of the change. It's not like technology ain't going to change anything for us. Like we, this is about who we are as human beings. This is like where our endogenous and our exogenous ecosystems are, you know, just reflections of one another, you know, and we have to remember this because this is important. Um, so yeah, Russian olive ain't going anywhere. So we, we might as well make friends and hunker down for the long run because they are an amazing medicine, a whole pharmacopoeia, and an amazing food. Oh, Lord, how do I even get started here? <laughs> so, um, like I said, the, 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 the thousands of years of folk medicine was basically um, proved, proven correct by... Pharm the, the pharmacological research. I wanted to start with a very interesting uh, biochemical aspect of, okay, beta-carbolines. This is really crazy. So beta-carbolines are in the indole group of alkaloids, so they're an indole alkaloid. Um, interesting thing about alkaloid in a lot of words in chemistry, especially we see this al- like alchemy, alkaloid. It's like, because this is a Persian plant. Alkaloid, al is a, is, a, is a Persian word. It means like of the, you know? So like you'll see anytime you see like stuff with the al at the beginning, it's that's a Persian, Persian root of that. Indoles are volatile aromatic compounds that you get them in citrus. You get them in a lot of types of flowers. Perfumers love them. Um, and also in high concentrations. It's like what makes poop smell like poop, actually. I found this out not too long ago, and I was like, like wow, I had no idea. Chemistry's cool, <laughs> you know? Just like how all of this stuff plugs together. So beta-carbolines are one of the mo more interesting aspects of the medicinal properties of Russian olive. Um, beta-carboline aquas is quite a few different ones, and there's also quite a few different ones in Russian olive. Specifically, uh, there's like like at least 20 of them, but there is two specifically because some people have heard of these. Okay, so harmal and harmane. These are in the harmaline group. Harm, harmane, harmine, harmaline. There's a whole bunch of different like harms. Um, who's heard of ayahuasca? A lot of people have heard of ayahuasca. DMT-containing plants are everywhere. Every, like, most living organisms actually contain naturally occurring DMT. Our body is really amazing and has, like, billions of enzymes that are there for everything, you know? Specifically, there is the uh, monoamine oxidase enzymes that are there to break down DMT in our gut so we don't trip out all the time because we are, like, ingesting... Um, plant matter and stuff that has naturally occurring DMT on it on a daily basis and we have enzymes that are there to protect us from tripping out all the time. Beta-carboline, harmal, harmane, harmaline, 
Those are the same alkaloids. So harmaline is the MAOI inhibitor that is in the ayahuasca vine that is combined with the chacruna leaf that when used together, it, it um, blocks that enzyme. It's an MAOI inhibitor, blocks that enzyme from breaking down the DMT so it actually works and, and you have that experience. Um, Russian olive has MAO inhibitors in them, naturally occurring, pretty trippy. Really interesting. Beta carbolines, I still do not understand what they're all about. Over the past little bit, I've come to understand them more. But what I do understand is that they are used in everything from anti So, like in Russian olive, the beta carbolines are helpful for everything from the cardioprotective properties to the antidepressive properties to the um, muscle relaxant properties that this plant has but the carbolines what they found out is that in traditional iranian folk medicine the bark powder was used for like depressive mood stuff you know and that they would like give people like russian olive bark when they were feeling like super melancholy or really anxious you know and they did some research on it and found that it's because of the beta carboline indole alkaloids and and pharmaceutical pharma they have made pharmaceutical antidepressants out of synthetic beta carbolines, you know? So like this group of alkaloids that is naturally occurring in Russian olive has been used in many other contexts for mood disorder kind of stuff. Pretty cool, pretty trippy. Um, so on top of the beta, um, beta carboline. So yeah, so this is one of the things that, in the Middle East, they've put a lot of research into is Alzheimer's research with Russian olive because it's one of the few fruits in the world that actually has like complex fatty acid profile in it. They do have like um, a lot of different fatty acids, but one fatty acid that everybody's familiar with is oleic acid. It's like an olive oil, right? But um, the beta carboling, the medicinal aspects of this is the neuroprotective cerebro protective cardio protective properties why this is important is that on a daily basis you know there's some other things i'm about to get into but we need we need this because the the standard american diet makes our body sad because it is sad who would have thought um and it's also very it's also just very um we're exposed to oxidative stress on a regular basis. And so that is going to kind of be my segue. I'm going to connect it back into the next uh, massive profile of this amazing tree, which is the flavonoids. There are so many different flavonoids. And now just quick disclaimer, I am like narrowing down this to like a fraction of what is actually going on with this plant. Like I could talk about this for like days, you know, and probably not make a dent in it. Like the, what they found in this research, they were like, yeah, this tree is like amazing. You know, like it, they found way more than they expected in this tree. Flavonoids are awesome. Um, the antioxidant powerhouse of Russian olive is amazing. It's probably one of the most antioxidant rich uh, medicines that we have access to. The thing about oxidative stress is that you need a lot of different kinds of antioxidants, you know? So 
there's a lot of different flavonoids which are made up of compounds called polyphenols. There's a lot of different polyphenols. There's so many different ones, you know, but just to keep it simple, the flavonoids, bioflavonoids, polyphenols, all of these are different kinds of antioxidants. Um, oxidative stress kills us. It's kind of trippy, you know, like life is, life is ruthless. You know, oxygen is our like most life-giving, lovely, you know, like giver of life, but it also will kill us really fast too, you know, like the element that gives us life is also killing us. Like oxidative stress um, is a very important thing to be aware of because we're also exposed to a lot of stuff that creates a lot of oxidative stress. We eat a lot of food that creates a lot of oxidative stress. Uh, rancid oils and fats create a lot of oxidative stress in our body. Um, and they are rancid because they are oxidated. Like oxidization of fats makes them rancid and eating rancid oils is really bad for us. So flavonoids, um, a lot of these polyphenols and flavonoids are, they are free radical scavenging. Who's heard of this term free radical scavenger? A free radical is a molecule that's missing an electron and it goes and takes an electron to stabilize itself from another molecule that is then missing an electron and so and so forth. You have this chain reaction of like oxidative stress of all of these like molecules grabbing electrons from each other and they're kind of left incomplete. They're like, ah. So the thing about antioxidants is that they're a bit more stable, you know, so they can offer an electron, you know, and stabilize a free radical. But then they themselves, they don't turn into a free radical, but they are kind of incomplete then. And they actually need a different kind of antioxidant to come and stabilize them. So the more diversity of different kinds of antioxidants you have in your diet from like a lot of different kinds of like plant foods, you know, rich in polyphenols and flavonoids is better because they've found that synthetic, synthetically created, um, antioxidants that are just like one kind of antioxidant can actually like do a lot more harm than good. They can actually be pretty toxic. So we need the more antioxidants that we have from different sources, the better, because like, that's kind of just life, you know, like one antioxidant is kind of sacrificing its own stability to like neutralize a free radical. And then a different kind of antioxidant is needed to neutralize that one. So that's why Russian olive has so many different antioxidants and flavonoids in them. So Russian olive has carbohydrates. There's fructose and glucose has polysaccharides. Who knows what polysaccharides are? Complex carbohydrates. Yeah, they're like really long chain complex carbohydrates that are actually like really good for our immune system. Like carbohydrates, like medicinal mushrooms, you know, the immune system modulating compounds and a lot of medicinal mushrooms are like polysaccharides. Polysaccharides are awesome. So we got different polysaccharides. We have amino acids and fatty acids. It's very rare for fruits to actually have fatty acids. And they have, speaking of fatty acids, they have, they have polyunsaturated, um, monounsaturated, and saturated fatty acids all in one fruit that's pretty incredible like that's not that common and you see how um, abundant like they they are to like how much fruit they produce um, 
it's like this this really is like one of the most nutrient dense superfoods it's a neo-american superfood they ain't going anywhere and it's pretty incredible so one of the coolest things about the history of this medicine is how it's been used for pain and arthritis management in traditional iranian folk medicine um the flavonoids all of the different various flavonoids and have a very big effect on on pain management so they would actually use like the the powdered fruit mixed with milk as a like treatment for rheumatoid or osteoarthritis and what they found when they did research on this is that they assume and suggest that it's because of the different flavonoids but that the in in terms of being able to manage pain that for osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis that russian olive fruit is just as effective as ibuprofen and acetaminophen for like pain relief it's kind of crazy that like we have access to this amazing tree here that like what you don't know you don't know but now you know um and and with that it's also a really powerful muscle relaxant too you know so there is like a combination of a very potent analgesic pain relieving agent with a muscle relaxing agent that kind of is like really helpful for us all the time because we're always just so tense and working so hard and not being super good to our bodies you know so just like this fall when the freezes go harvest like a 50 gallon barrel of russian olives stem leaves and fruits and make yourself a nice decoction every day it's the best beverage tea ever it's, it, it's really good and one of the cool things that they found out no matter how hard they tried to find um a too much line they couldn't find a too much line they're like there are no like contraindications that we can find with this like plant and like no amount that we could give any kind of like poor little lab rats would hurt them you know and we just like um that there 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 wasn't any adverse effects in any part of this plant the only one actually take that back was that these trees can be bioaccumulators same with siberian elm that's why they plant them for mine reclamation stuff is that they actually can't uptake like heavy metals um so that's just one thing to be mindful of but um Oh yeah, and one of the cool things, real quick, about these flavonoids, uh, there is a flavonoid called quercetin. Quercetin is pretty common in a lot of different plants. Uh, is that some of these flavonoids, like quercetin, can chelate metals in our body? So chelation is something. You know, like have you ever seen like EDTA, like disodium EDTA? It's like a, they put it in food and stuff. You'll see it on food labels. EDTA is what they give people that have metal poisoning because it chelates metals in your body it binds to metal ions and actually helps your body get them out because once metals in your body oftentimes it has a hard time getting out of your body and chelation therapy is a way to do that because you need something to bind to the metal ion to like help eliminate and so these flavonoids and stuff actually can help us chelate metals out of our bodies and they also help uptake these trees do uptake a lot of metals too um let's see let's see okay yeah yeah yeah. so so okay so the gut oh my god the gut everybody struggles with gut problems at some point in their life uh especially with the sad diet you know our gut gets sad um it's not surprising but inflammatory diets 
damage the epithelial tissue in our gut and the mucous membranes in our guts get messed up. And then, you know, uh, there was a drug in Armenia that was made from um, Russian olive, Russian olive fruit, specifically for colitis and leaky gut and like different kinds of like GI diseases. Because one of the amazing things about this plant is its ability. So the gut thing and the wound healing thing, for me, they go hand in hand. Wound healing. This plant is amazing. I mean. Find the fancy word I wrote it down. Okay, so hydroxyproline. Hydroxyproline is what our body needs to help make collagen. When we have a wound, how your body re-knits that wound together is by making collagen. Collagen is like a big part of everything in our body. So all of the extracts that they made with um and a lot of this in the research, you know, they're making like really complicated kind of like extracts with like everything from ammonia to ethanol to just water, you know, but the aqueous extract, which is water, um, on, on wounds increases the hydroxyproline, which then increases the collagen production on the wound and helps wounds like heal way faster. And, um, Russian olive is also just like an insanely potent antimicrobial agent too that is also like very resistant to many different strains of like staph infection and MRSA and even E. coli as well, you know? So it's like a pretty amazing medicine on our, for our endogenous and our endogenous and our exogenous kind of ecosystems for ourself. And, um, and so like in our gut, right? Like, it's really helpful for kind of like soothing the mucosal membranes, you know, like very, very potent anti-inflammatory and also helping the epithelial tissue in our gut, um, like remain good cell junctions. And one of the reasons that is, is because it's got a lot of tannin in it, you know, like tannic acid is like pretty important for like tonifying tissue. You know, have you ever eaten something with a lot of tannin? It kind of makes your mouth pucker up a little bit. And that's like that tannin is, is, is helpful in small doses for like tonifying and like tightening cell junctions, you know, because like when we have like loose cell junctions in our gut, that's like where stuff gets through and gets nasty and like gets into our blood and stuff. So like Russian olive is probably one of the best gut maintenance teas and foods you can eat on a regular basis and i think that like it really just comes down to like how creative do you all want to get and finding cool ways to incorporate this like fruit into your diet you know i've pickled them i've like um made a fruit leather with them you know because they like if you make a fruit leather if you're making it with like really sour plum or apple you just process a whole bunch of uh of the pulp from Russian olives and cut it into there. And it makes it kind of more like jerky. It makes it mealy and like hearty and a little bit more mellow. And it takes most of the sour away from like more sour, um, sour fruit leathers. And that's probably one of the best fruit leathers I've ever had. It's pretty incredible. So yeah. So with that in the gut, ulcers are a pretty bad thing that can happen to some people too. You know, some ulcers get caused by like, uh, H. pylori, you know, like bacteria that can like lodge into our like 
lining of our stomachs and cause ulcers. The poor mice and rats that involuntarily gave their lives for all this research. It sucks. All of the stuff I was reading about Russian olive all came from like mice tests and rat tests. And I was like, man, that would be a shitty job to like do this to like um, mice all day with the beta carboline, you know, and the endol alkaloids. What they would do to the poor rats is they would inject them with scopolamine. You know what scopolamine is? Scopolamine is a tropane alkaloid that comes from uh, the nightshade plants like Dartura and Brugmansia and, and like the like those very psychotropic nightshades that are like really intense. They're like a high and like really they're not fun alkaloids, you know. And so they would inject them with it, and then they would like start like giving them a bunch of these like beta carboline extracts from. Um, Russian olive and they like rebounded super fast from like because it basically it just like completely turns you into a zombie you know and like it like made the poor little rats rebound pretty fast so it's pretty incredible poor 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 little animals though man but yeah so for the gut tissue right if you have an ulcer this is they tested it in mice and rats unfortunately but like they would give them ulcers by like injecting ethanol into their into their gut basically to like eat a hole into their gut lining and then just give them a bunch of like russian olive extract and the russian olive extract like healed their gut very fast so it does work you know it is actually used as there are like ulcer drugs that are made from russian olive in these other countries that like so like it's just overall gut maintenance russian olive is your friend it's really great um because, you know, like I said about the collagen, we need collagen in all parts of our body, you know? Like, that's why bone broth is really good, but also just, like, um, in your gut, having, like, plants like Russian olive to, like, help your body stimulate more collagen is really good. Yeah, so for pain, for everything, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, so what I wanted to say real quick about oxidization, when we have oxidative stress in our bodies... Um, and this is why they've done research on, on Alzheimer's with this. We have all of these like little neurons in our brains that are like firing. There's like little neurotransmitters going back and forth between these like neurotransmitters in our brain and our neurotransmitters have these like little fatty acid lipid sheaths on them, um, like that. And when those get oxidized away, we like lose our like neurotransmitter capabilities, you know? So oxidative stress like literally eats away at the the um, lipid sheaths that line your neurotransmitters, and so like the when it says that the beta carbolines and the stuff and the fatty acids specifically like fatty we need fatty acids in our diet to like coat all of the parts of our body that need fatty acids just like our our neuro tissue and stuff you know um, we really need that but dopamine. Is that we like we all love dopamine, right? Dopamine's amazing. Kind of like dopamine myself. But dopamine is actually causes a lot of oxidative stress. Like dopamine actually does oxidize the its own neurotransmitters. So it's kind of baked into the cake of our of who we are, you know, like we oxidize, you know, we're kind of just like we're gonna rust. So we have to kind of take care of ourselves so we don't rust out too fast. And um Russian olive is here for us in so many ways it's here for this whole landscape 
look at every turd you find from now until all of the Russian olive fruits are eaten. You'll find Russian olive seeds in every animal turd you will ever find around here. That's like why they're really filling in a huge like they're really creating like a huge like food bank for so many birds and mammals, you know, like everybody eats them. You'll see that in a lot of like range science publications, they say that Russian olive is an inferior forage plant for like ungulates. That is not true. It's like not even a little bit true. Like it's, it's really good. Thanks for coming. I'm actually, this is it, everybody. That's, I could, I could go on for days and days and days, but like, I think that, um, just starting here with this basic understanding of Russian olive and some of its cultural kind of history and everything um, and some of the basic medicinal properties of this plant and how to incorporate it into your diet by like making teas with it every day. The riper the berries are, the better the tea gets. And just by like accustoming your palate to eating them, you know, do it. Thanks for listening. If these topics resonate with you, consider joining us this coming summer for one of our programs for all ages focused on ecological literacy, ethnobotany, and building your personal relationship to the ecologies you are a part of. The programs range from a weekend to a full week in length, and you can find more information at layinggroundwork.org. This episode was produced by Jeff Wagner and edited by me, Riley Lopez. Our introduction music is by the Sim Redmond Band. Many special thanks to Gabe Crawford, Rampai Noikau, Gregory Pettis, and the many teachers on plants and seeds who helped bring this knowledge together. You can learn more about our work at layinggroundwork.org. <laughs>